Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So what do we do now? What's next? Do we, do we file a third appeal? Nothing's next, Mike. We lost our second appeal. So you're saying that I'm here for the rest of my life? I want you to know it's it's been an honor to fight for your father. And I hope that one day you can think of this as closure. And um, also, I just met with Larry. He believes an owl has something to do with that night. Welcome back to The Staircase Podcast. I'm your host, Nancy Miller. Researcher Michael Matthews returns this episode to discuss Michael Peterson's time in prison, a period of his life almost entirely absent from the original documentary. And I'll sit down with Sophie Turner and Odessa Young, who portray Margaret and Martha Ratliff, to discuss what it was like depicting the tumultuous circus that was the Peterson clan. But first, unsolved cases tend to attract conspiracy theories far-fetched ideas that help fill the void of a whodunit. And fans of The Staircase know that the death of Kathleen Peterson led to one of the most far-fetched theories in true crime history. That Kathleen wasn't killed by her husband, but rather she was attacked by an owl. A barred owl, to be precise. The owl theory, as it's known, soon took on a pop culture life all of its own. But then something really funny happened. Over time, people began to take it seriously. And that's all thanks to Larry Pollard, a retired attorney and Michael Peterson's neighbor, played by Joel McKinnon Miller in the series. Pollard first proposed the idea that Kathleen Peterson died at the talons of a bird of prey way back in 2003. Here, we talk about how the owl theory went from an absurd notion to a credible idea, and the price Larry Pollard paid for standing by it. Larry Pollard, it is a pleasure to have you on the companion podcast to the HBO Max original series, The Staircase. I appreciate the invitation very much. So the staircase that the HBO Max version of the series is Mm -hmm. um, a docudrama. It is a very creative exploration of the Michael Peterson case. But what's more, it gives you for the first time ever, this much richer perspective of a lot of the themes and the threads that we were never fully privileged to see in the original documentary. Mm -hmm. And one of those profoundly compelling threads was you, your work, and your relationship with Michael and the owl theory. But before we get to that, you were Michael and Kathleen Peterson's next-door neighbor. Is that right, Larry? That's correct. My wife and I had been living in the house that I grew up in for 52 years, and they had moved in, I think, in the early 
1990s, and so that was maybe eight, nine years that they had been our neighbors. So, Larry, in the face of tragedy, most next-door neighbors, they offer condolences. Maybe they bring over a casserole. You, however, take it a much step further, and you offer a plausible theory to the death of Kathleen Peterson and one that you'd hoped might lead to Michael Peterson's release or proof of innocence. That is some good neighborly stuff. (laughs) Tell me, why? Well, I'll explain that to you. First of all, I'm an attorney, and I was taken an oath to be an attorney, and when I did, Mm -hmm. I swore that I would be out to seek justice, and that's what I have been doing in this particular case is to seek justice. Yes. And you learn the techniques of how to find little bits of evidence that sometimes can be very influential and uh, prove the innocence or guilt of an individual. In this case, my experience of living next to that house for 52 years and being aware of what was in the trees, most people don't think that owls are there. Most people don't think that owls hurt you, and for the most part, they won't. But like any wild creature, they can cause havoc on an individual. I felt as though something was not correct in this case. Neither of the theories that were put forth by the state prosecution nor by the defense counsels made any sense to me at all. Right. So it's not possible. She didn't just fall down the stairs. And certainly, Michael Peterson, you felt, didn't kill her. That's right. And as a result of that, I decided to look into it because Michael Peterson was my next door neighbor. And as such, I realized that it says in the Bible, if your neighbor's in trouble, help him. And that's what I've been trying to do all my life is to help people. You know, Larry, I, I, I admire what you did because it's a lot of work to try and explore this theory. But as the owl theory gained prevalence, initially people probably thought this is absolutely outrageous. This is a, at, the, at best confirmation bias because he's my friend and at worst just this wild idea by someone who thinks he's a detective. Um, Over time, as forensic techniques have gotten a little more sophisticated, the owl theory has gained traction. So let me just ask you first, for those viewers who aren't familiar with the owl theory, lay it out for us. The first thing I thought when I saw a Xerox copy of the autopsy photograph of the wounds was that they reminded me of turkey tracks. I'm a hunter and a fisherman, a sportsman, as we say, down here in the South. So that was my first aha moment was when I saw the wounds and lacerations on the back right corner of her head. And I said, I wonder if this could have been done by a bird. They look like turkey tracks, but they're not turkey tracks. They're something else. 
and I quickly started to zero in on the time that this happened. It was at dark at nighttime, December the 9th, when owls are out in the nighttime trying to seek something to eat. So I said, let's go over to the North Carolina uh, Natural Sciences Museum in Raleigh. I pulled down the first book off the first shelf, and I saw in there that he was uh, uh, very informative about all things pertaining to owls. And over to my right at that point in the library, uh, there was a mounted baby owl, and it matched up with the number of lacerations, and the uh, prosecution was saying that these are bloody gash wounds. There's seven to eight lacerations. Well, I looked at that uh, mount, and I went one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and they were right in the shape of the same marks that were on the back of Mrs. Peterson's head. I said, oh, my goodness. Another sentence came up. It said, when owls strike human beings, nine, um, they make uh, bloody gash wounds. And that's what Mrs. Peterson died from. It said on the autopsy report, I went back and reviewed that. It said blunt force trauma and blood loss may have played a role. Well, I'll stipulate to the fact that it was blunt force trauma. This bird's coming in at 30 miles an hour, and it's got needle point talons. So, Larry, I have worked with a lot of, you know, crime reporters, investigative journalists, and I think I know this moment that you're having where it's, oh, my God, I'm on to something. That's right. And the, the, the question I have for you is, then what? Oh, the first thing I started to think of is, well, now, how did that bird get inside the house? And I said, ah, I see what happened here. The blood tracks are not Michael going out and to hide the bloody blowpoke. Because, just to remind viewers, that what you're talking about is outside of the house, when they made the initial video, when the police were walking through, they zoom in on these little drops of blood. Exactly. And you're like, well, how the heck did those get there if she fell down the stairs? Yes. This started to inform that... Michael Peterson was trying to hide some type of weapon or evidence. You're saying, nope. Exactly. At that point in time, when I saw everybody running in, they went right by the evidence of the little spots outside. Everybody, all of a sudden, made a rush to judgment. Yeah. That, oh, this looks like a murder. They didn't look carefully at what they were looking at. Mrs. Peterson was actually struck by an owl outside of her residence, and she ran back into the house, and she ultimately bled to death. You were probably accustomed as an attorney to people listening to you. Yes. Now, when you present the owl theory, I'm wondering, did people lean back like, what? What happened? Oh, they definitely did that. They definitely would lean back and say, oh, this is outrageous. Outlandish was the word they used in the newspaper. You bring this evidence to the authorities. You get kind of blown off, but the story gets this theory gets traction because of another incident that happens in your area, and it's then almost like you know there's evidence. Wait, an owl has attacked this guy. Hold on a second. The collective consciousness seems to travel back in time and remember. Wait a minute. There was that Michael Peterson case, and it's because of this other incident that helps buttress your original theory. Exactly. 
and this guy was 6'3", whatever, huge, and the bird hit him so hard it knocked his pants down halfway down his legs or butt, and you can clearly see this. Ah. He's got a videotape of this attack on film. That was the security camera at that business, and he, you clearly see this bird coming in from the rear, hitting him in the back right corner of the head, and all of a sudden he's bleeding like a stuffed pig. And when people were saying, owls don't hit people, oh, no. And I'm saying, oh, yes, they do. I saw the videotape. I immediately took it over to WRL-TV. It was put on television, and all the other inmates were sitting there in the living room there watching TV and watching the news. And, and one of the inmates said, Michael? you better come in here now. And he said, why? He said, that neighbor of yours is not as crazy as we thought. Mm -hmm. He picked up the phone and he called me. He said, Larry, this is Michael Peterson. He said, I've just seen this videotape on TV. Would you come down here and talk to me about this style theory of yours? Right. We met. We talked. He said, do you really think this happened? I said, yeah. So he and I came to an agreement. I made a motion for appropriate relief. Uh, the judge did not grant it. I was a little bit disappointed that he wouldn't grant a at least a hearing on this evidence because this evidence was coming from very qualified ornithologists, medical doctors, yeah. and even later on from the Audubon Society, they wrote an article in their own magazine saying it's more than likely that this was done by an owl. And I'm saying, hallelujah, brother. Yeah. I finally got somebody that believes what I've been saying. But again, people, they weren't going to change their attitudes. They had their theory that they had prevailed with at the trial, and everybody was still clinging to that rush to judgment. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. As time moves on, opinion starts to shift. And whether it's through you know, the the proliferation of podcasts and true crime documentaries that the public is now more open to exploring alternative theories versus the black and white of a murder case or a not murder case. And people are starting to give your theory credibility and more attention. Talk to me a little bit about this moment where you realized that the winds were changing. All of these people were starting to speak up. And it was very enlightening and very, very welcoming to me because I put a lot of my credibility in line on this. And uh, But it, it's been a, a journey of, for a long time, 20-some years, 21 now, I think. But I've learned a lot, and I've experienced a lot. And I give credit to all of this to the Lord above because I'm a Christian and it says in the Bible, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it was my responsibility to bring that forward publicly. What else your theory has done, though, in addition to 
having me know the difference between a barred owl and a barn owl, which I would not have known, having only <laughs> seen an owl from an old Tootsie Pop commercial of how many licks it takes to get to the center. Um, I appreciate that what you did for this case, and I think for the exploration of true crime, is that you introduced this idea of possibility exactly. and of alternative, of not thinking of things in black and white, and that there might be an explanation that is potentially far-fetched, but with enough diligence and enough work and with the facts as you put them together, it offered, I think it's one of the reasons why this case has endured in the public uh, imagination and in our conversation, because you introduced this thing that could have saved a man's life. Yes, and I appreciate your saying that. That is really the most rewarding thing about this. Please don't rule out something that has validity. Larry, um, your story and you as a character is appearing in now a prominent, big-budget, splashy HBO Max original series. You've got Colin Firth as your next-door neighbor now, and the possibility that you will now even expand your celebrity in a whole new way to a whole new level. What what are your feelings on that? Well, it's gratifying to know that it is uh, getting some traction, as I like to say. But I've done all of this because I believed in a man's innocence, and I believed that this was not a crime. And I was seeking justice as best I could. I did it out of respect for the individual that was my neighbor, and I've worked hard on it. I've spent a, it's been a learning experience for me, mm-hmm. but it's been a joyful experience in a lot of ways. Uh, it gave me a purpose in life, and I have taken that and relish in it. That's wonderful. And you know what you've done for me? I would rather think the best of the person, even if that means thinking the worst of an owl. Uh, They're out there. They're beautiful creatures, believe me. Thank you again, Larry Pollard. I've been hoping to speak with you for eight years that I've been looking at this case. (laughs) So it's a real privilege for me. Thank you so much. And I look forward to hearing and seeing more of you and your story when this, uh, uh, this series comes out on HBO Max. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Glad to do it. Glad to do it. We've only had a handful of repeat guests on this podcast, namely co-showrunners Antonio Campos and Maggie Cohn. But the reason we asked Michael Matthews to come back again is because, as the series researcher, no one has his finger on the historical pulse of this show quite like him. And when it comes to episode six, he had his work cut out for him because this period of Michael Peterson's life was almost entirely a mystery. At least it was until Michael Matthews got to work. Michael Matthews, it is so great to have you back on the companion podcast to The Staircase. Thanks for having me back. In The Staircase documentary, there's this gigantic time jump of something like eight years between the time when Michael is sent to prison and when we first meet him again behind bars. But in the HBO Max series, we actually get to see what his life was like in prison. How did you fill in all those blanks so the writers had something to work with? So Michael wrote a memoir called um, Be- Behind the Staircase. This is sort of an area where you're sort of hearing Michael's description of, of prison and relationships in prison and trying to read between the lines. 
it was very important to Michael to write uh, a memoir of his time in prison. Uh, Michael's odyssey in prison is very dramatic. Um, and, and, you know, I think the, the high pieces of the drama, the, the, the sense that his life was being threatened, the sort of things he had to do, the relationships he had to create in prison to protect himself, um, we took directly from speaking with him. He basically had to learn, you know, in his late 50s, how to survive in this particular prison. Um, and that was sort of a, that was all new to him. Um, so, you know, he had, he had friends who would, he would lift weights with. He had um, friends who would sort of tell him, you know, about how to, you know, make sure he was getting enough food outside the canteen. I think he ended up trading stamps for peanut butter, which was against the rules, but it was something he had to do basically to keep the protein count up. Michael did have a terrible time in prison. He uh, he was able to adjust, um, and he also relied on outside help quite a bit. Um, you know, from friends who were still championing his innocence. Uh, he started a relationship with Sophie, the the editor, um, mainly through you know letters and, and prison visits. And his family stayed very devoted to him while he was in jail, and that was very fortuitous for Michael. Um, Ray, Michael's prison friend is a really important character in his life during this period. Is there a Ray in real life? Um, the Ray character is a, a composite. When, you, when you're watching the show, it's, it, you're, we're getting a version of prison that's very subjective from Michael's point of view. I think what we're talking about isn't necessarily you fact-checking every detail that Michael has said, but it's drawn from existing source material that you've been able to connect with Michael about. So he has a memoir, you draw a character from his memoir, and that's folded into the series. The thing about Ray is that he is actually someone who becomes a confidant, who kind of shows him the ropes and helps him. It, it really is more like Shawshank than like a, a, like a connection that has maybe just hints at these things. And there's this moment that Michael's writing about this kind of love affair with Ray, but it really is more of a, an affair of the mind. I would, I would have loved to have tried to track down some more people um, that Michael had been in prison with. Um, I wasn't, wasn't able to. He talks about a few friends uh, who you know, were not just mentors, but also some other friends in prison who he had uh, crushes on, uh, mostly younger men. Um, you know, I, I think um, his his time in prison is sort of uh, largely subjective. It's we we know about it through him. Um, some of the names he might have changed up along the way, um, but um, he would get very sort of uh, excited talking about you know all kinds of facets of what it was like in prison, and he speaks in this sort of um, I'm going to basically be your uh, tour guide through this you know neither world. Um, and he, he sort of seems to enjoy that role in some ways. You mentioned Sophie a moment ago, and I just wanted to talk about her for just a little bit more. Because while we spent some time getting to know her on last week's podcast, I still don't think that people fully understand just how big her and Michael's relationship status was overseas. Yeah, so it was not widely known in the U.S. Um, it was a big story in France. So I was able to basically get an old uh, Paris match, which is kind of like their Vanity Fair meets people. And there, you know, 15 years ago, suddenly you see these big 
uh, grainy photos of Michael smiling in prison with Sophie visiting him. And this full story, you know, spread on this great love between the documentarian, the great documentarian, and this man who's in jail for supposedly killing his wife, uh, who's been convicted for killing his wife. And she's completely devoted to um, finding his innocence. I, I can't emphasize enough how much stuff there was in the, the French press about this relationship. It's extraordinary. I mean, they were a celebrity. They were basically a celebrity couple in Paris. I read an interview with Jean Xavier where he said that he felt that Sophie's professional obligations were never compromised by her personal feelings towards Michael. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> and I'm sorry, Michael. I know you know these people personally, and this isn't me. This is my effort as part of the job is to enjoy being a little provocative in, in, in the disbelief that I think we're going to have while we're watching this. Who is this person real? How does this happen? And the excellence of the writing and crafting of the story where you really are just an absolute shock uh, that this is, this is, this could possibly be true. And this isn't, I don't mean to say anything about anyone's character. It just, there was no transparency about that relationship um, until we see this on the screen for the first time. And so I think it's just like, oh, what that happened. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you chimed in. I mean, I have a habit of basically defending everyone in this um, because I think that what sort of I love about this project and which it was so special for me was that I feel that everybody in this story has the convictions of their actions in real life. If you believe Michael is innocent, you basically believe for fairly good faith reasons. Um, and if you think he's guilty, you, you have your reasons for thinking he's guilty. Over the course of your research, did you ever encounter anyone who took issue with the documentary that thought it was maybe too one-sided? When I spoke of people who were completely convinced that Michael was guilty, who, who knew Michael, um, they didn't, their beef with the defense was not the Al theory. It was the fact that so many people had seen the documentary and thought based on the documentary, Michael was innocent. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I don't know if people understand what they're seeing. Like, just say more about that. The, the, the documentary, when they first came to Durham, was interested in following a expensive rich person's murder trial from both sides, the prosecution and the defense. Um, as the weeks, you know started to add up, the prosecution kept keeping the defense at an arm's length. So, you know, almost by accident, in some ways, the, the, the filmmakers spent more time with the defense. And at a pivotal moment during the pretrial phase, became worried that the prosecution was going to seize the tapes they'd been filming and use them as evidence in the trial. So they made an agreement with the defense that they wouldn't, not only would they not release the documentary until after the trial, um, but also that they would technically be hired by the defense um, as videographers. It was a tactic to keep the footage um, for the benefit of the documentarians, specifically, you know, uh, friends and family of Kathleen and Michael's who thought Michael was guilty, um, have a, might have a bias against the documentary. But I think like larger picture, less like that fact that they had this, you know, little um, technical agreement is that they were spending all their time with the defense. If you're spending all your time with the defense, you're going to be basically have a tunnel vision from the point of view of the defense. 
uh, who you spend time with is going to affect what you think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, stu- a stupid observation, but basically true. I, I think I think if you went in a time machine back to 2001 and um, took the documentary out, let's say that this was a private trial in Durham, and uh, let's say that the family members decided that they were going to cooperate either with the defense or the prosecution, but they weren't going to do interviews with the press. Uh, you know, they weren't going to go on television. It would have been a completely different project. And as the researcher who was literally gathering the facts the writers would turn into this HBO Max story, how did you actually see your role? And was it ever hard to sit down with people who, I assume, were still rocked by this on both sides? Trying to make sure that what we see on screen is extremely close to the reality um, was very important to the filmmakers. My job was to find truth, not just to give a mouthpiece to the prosecution or the defense. And I think that for me, I felt like there actually was a huge opportunity with this to talk about what the documentary didn't talk about. And I felt when they spoke with people um, that they wanted to get a lot off their chest and to sort of um, share their experience. So I I didn't feel like I was chasing people with a microphone or invading their privacy. Um, Sometimes, you know, sensitive questions come up, especially if you're talking about um, a death in the family, or if you're talking about people's, you know, you know, private lives, um, you know, sexual lives, you, you don't just, as anyone, you know, you don't just jump in with like a, a, a bald question. You just try to try to hear people out. Um, I'm a little bit more of an introvert than some people. So I'm actually very comfortable listening rather than talking. I just sort of listened and let, let it breathe longer. Um, and try to learn from them. Right. They're very brave people. I have to say that. These are very emotionally brave people. I'm really curious to know, you work on this project for how many months of research is this? It was over the course of 2020 and 2021. Um, ended up being, I think it ended up being close to a full year when you added it together. How do you know when you're done that you've unturned the every stone how do you know that you've gotten it and you've gotten it right? I think you'd have to just look at, did I look at everything that was already out there? Did I, did I cross check? Um, it's not the most exciting thing about what I do. Just so much as trying to find out what is real and what isn't real. Right. It, it, that never necess- doesn't necessarily transition into anything that you will ever see on a, on a page in a script or on screen, but it just goes to show how, much the volume, the avalanche of information that you have to get in order to get to the eight episode, clean, tightly edited, beautifully produced, incredible music with a podcast at the end type of show. And there's something very surreal about this. Yeah. Antonio and and, and Maggie and the other writers would say, you know, if if I came in with some information, are you saying that because you think that, or are you saying that because there's proof of that? It's good to have that sort of rigor to sort of look at yourself and say, wait a second, did I make anything up in my head just now? Because I think everybody does try to, you know, ascribe motive without always knowing motive. Whatever happened in the past happened. There's only one past. And I think that that's an important thing to to think about. It's just very hard to get at what actually happened in the past. Um, You can get close. You're probably not going to get 100% there, but you can get, you know, closer inch by inch. Did you ever sit down with any of the actors to help them prepare for their roles? Um, I didn't speak with the actors. Um, I have to say, the first time I, I heard a, uh, a table reading 
uh, rehearsal with Colin Firth, I was stunned by how much he sounded like Michael. Yes. Um, in the documentary, you know, in the audio um, of just Michael speaking. I mean, it's, and I couldn't believe that he was doing that as someone who was not from the exact same place as Michael is from. He even has those little, like, huh, like the little breathy little ticks. I was shocked. Shocked. It was, it was spooky. It was spooky. This has been, again, I, I feel like I'm going to walk away and suddenly have 10 more questions that I wish I'd asked, but I just, I, I'm just blown away by the material you're able to collect that I still, in a case that I thought I knew, I, I'm humbled by it. Oh, thank you. And once again, thank you for sharing your expertise. It's been an incredible conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. One of the differences between the Staircase documentary and the HBO Max limited series is the depiction of the Peterson kids who had their late teenage and early adult lives totally upended by Kathleen Peterson's death and Michael Peterson's trial and conviction. This series allows viewers a glimpse into something that likely took place when the cameras were turned off. The young women wrestling with the horrifying prospect that Michael, their father, was guilty. For our final discussion of this episode, we sit down with Sophie Turner and Odessa Young to talk about what it was like depicting a family in crisis. It is a sincere pleasure to have you both, Sophie Turner and Odessa Young. Hey, Nancy. Have you seen the show yet? This is my, I guess, the number one question. Have you had a chance to watch the series, Sophie? That's a great question, Nancy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it makes a difference in kind of how, I, if I get too specific with somebody, I, I feel terribly if I put somebody on the spot and you haven't seen the show. So. Well, um, that would be me. I, so far, have not because I, I just can't watch myself in anything, really. So I haven't, and I probably won't. But I loved working on it. <laughs> and for what it's worth, as someone who loves has watched the original documentary series many times and also is a fan of everybody in the cast, plus Antonio Campos and Maggie Cohn. This series is phenomenal. Oh. And it's like nothing I've ever seen before. Oh, that's awesome. And one of the most powerful parts of the series is the relationship between Margaret and Martha Ratliff. Uh, and these are the two characters that you play, um, Sophie and Odessa. So, when you were going to be playing sisters, did you guys have a relationship already? Were you friends? Was this the first time that you were going to be connecting? Every night before bed, I would kiss a poster of Sophie Turner. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But we hadn't met. We hadn't met before we played Margaret and Martha. But I remember Sophie sent me a text one day to like jump on the phone. It was before we were meant to do this audition and stuff like that. And I don't know how it's possible to convey so much warmth and kindness in one text message, but somehow she did it. And I remember being like, oh my God, this is just going to be incredible. But yeah, I think watching the documentary, I think that those girls are really kind of the emotional linchpins of the audience's perspective because for the most part they are very unguarded or at least in the documentary they are edited to appear to be the unguarded ones when the you know the brothers are very businessy and obviously the lawyers are doing their thing and Michael is being Michael um 
the girls are definitely the ones that you as a viewer are meant to kind of find your way into the story through because Sophie you had experience you had you had already known this documentary before doing the show yeah so I remember when I watched it for the first time I had already read the first couple of episodes of Antonio's show and and Mm. I I remember that that really changed the way that I was watching the documentary because I was immediately personalizing everything and I was immediately going how could they how could they do that to this family because I was already reading it as Martha going kind of through that perspective um so that definitely yeah that definitely probably changed (laughs) changed everything (laughs) the way that I saw everything (laughs) in the first Oh, yeah. And I think I think viewers viewers will feel the same way. You rewatch it with a completely a a nuanced and richer understanding, thanks to the writing and the characters. So, Sophie, you knew this documentary. Was it as like watching it in its most recent incarnation on Netflix or were you aware of it before that? Uh, No, I wasn't aware of it before the Netflix release. Uh, I, I watched it during the pandemic when everyone was kind of like watching that. I mean, I'm completely obsessed with it. And then like maybe six or seven months later, I got the script sent through and I, for the first couple of episodes and I, I read it and I was like, wow, this is just so interesting and, and such like a different perspective of this case that it, it wouldn't be like you said, like a retelling of the same story. It was something completely different. So I I was really excited to do something that, um, approached it from like a completely different direction and shone a light on something some parts of this case that I don't think would have ever come to light had we not made this show you know as sisters they seem very very close and that's depicted really well in in a realistic way there's that tension there's that intimacy that only close sisters have Um, but when it comes to dealing with what happens with their father and the fallout from all that in the series, they approach this very differently. Margaret is the sort of steadfast, loyal one who seems to be completely unrelenting in her faith in her father. And Martha is the one who is more the truth seeker and the questioner. Can sort of each one of you just talk about how you understood the sort of how and why of Martha and Margaret? And maybe, Sophie, you can start. You know, I think it's... um fear-based not because she fears her father but it's a fear of abandonment again in some sense or another every kind of um constant in her life that what that she thought was going to be a constant was kind of pulled you know pulled out from under her and uh and so the only two people that have really been there for her her entire life have been martha and and michael and so um, I think she's just un- completely unwilling to let that ever happen to her again. And if that means a complete blind loyalty to Michael, then that's what it has to be. You know, kind of what Sophie was saying before about this idea of abandonment. Like, I think that Martha has internalized that really differently. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, she is the younger sibling so she will always have Margaret no matter what. She has kind of the two people above her to to hold on to. And whereas Margaret feels 
the responsibility to kind of look after Martha. So Martha doesn't have that same responsibility. And I think that allows her to, um, to be more skeptical and to be more questioning because she's actually not trying to protect anyone with her steadfastness. I think that she relies really heavily on Margaret to kind of take the reins and to, to be the face of them as sisters. And she hides herself a lot and she's very kind of reticent to um, appear in front of the camera and being thrust into the into this place where all of a sudden you have to be the most flawless and perfect performance of a happy family. I think that she start, I think that she kind of feels crazed by this because it's so the opposite to her experience and to all of their experiences because I think that everybody else in the family can kind of go this is what needs to be done this is who we need to be this is this is the the story of the petersons whereas martha i think finds it a lot harder to pretend or to perform my understanding is that you neither one of you spoke with the actual girls women um is that right yeah yeah so something that we've been talking about with colin firth and tony collette and others in the series is how you kind of manage the creation of a person, knowing sort of your sort of bullet fact points. Um, how do you do that when there are the other persons out there in the world? That's a good question. It's, it's a tough balance, I think, to achieve because on the one hand, you know, obviously we have the documentary. You don't want to create just an imitation of this character it has to be more it has to be more in depth it has to be more studied mm -hmm. we, we didn't have that one-on-one -on -one contact which you know it, it might have been helpful but it also gave us a little bit of of liberation a bit of freedom and I mean for me personally I felt like I could make her a little bit like put a bit more of myself into her I had a bit more liberty to kind of um, create than maybe I I would have otherwise um, if I'd have actually had these one-on-one -on -one conversations with her. Um, but of course, it's like a very delicate balance because you're playing someone real and this is very real um, trauma that these girls have gone through. And so um, just a hell of a lot of research, a lot of conversations with Antonio. Did Margaret share any thoughts about having you play her in the TV series? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe that's she a good thing. Like, yes. God damn it. <laughs> She's like, ew, I hate her. <laughs> I hope you know that I meant she probably thought that was good news and would be thrilled uh, that, and, and, and trustful of what you can deliver. Uh, because after all, I was thinking like, okay, here's a, here's a show where Sophie Turner plays a sister who has these sort of ego-driven older brothers who are trying to prove loyalty to their father and they go <laughs> off and do all this mucking about and she's home doing the work and the emotional labor. Does that sound familiar to, it does, you to know, anybody? I'm getting you a know? bit of like PTSD here. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any thoughts on that or kind of what this is trying to say and any comparisons between Clayton and Rob, Todd and Jon Snow? And I guess there's an aria in here too. With Odessa. A hundred percent. You know, I, I actually did feel that. Like when I when we were filming, I really did 
at certain moments like feel like I was back on Game of Thrones shooting a scene with Arya because like the dynamic was so similar. It's bizarre that you brought that up because I did feel like that at times. And You're very caring. You've got very deep big sister energy. Oh, thanks. Thanks. And like Martha's kill list, I would just love to see that, by the way. Like um it would be extensive, <laughs> I'm yeah. sure. Oh my god. It would go for days. It also seems like with Todd and Clayton, there's a lot we didn't know in the original documentary about that dynamic. And again, like we're not here to sort of fact check or compare real life with the the scripted version of the series. But um, as you were kind of looking at this family and Odessa, maybe you can answer this since the youngest one tends to have the the best point of view. What did you make of the Peterson family? Their definition of family is fascinating because so many members of this family, um, especially before Kathleen's death, had kind of no blood relation. I mean, the boys related to Kathleen. Caitlin isn't related to Michael. Margaret and Martha aren't related to anyone. Um, But they have this kind of unshakable family dynamic and I just, and I think that that's, that says a lot about what loyalty means to them because ultimately it's about not who, who you are, you know, genetically um, required to take care of, but who you choose to be loyal to and who you choose to have as part of your clan. And I think that ultimately all families are complicated, but the Petersons have a very specific, um, specific type of complication because of the nature of their tragedies and of the, the nature of their upbringing. Now, I understand from um, Antonio uh, and the team that because of uh, the quarantine, you guys were spending a lot of time together, at, you know, at the cast in a way that was almost like a family. Did that influence your characters or the relationships that you had with your co-stars? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we definitely felt like a family, especially by the end of it. You know, uh, most of our scenes, especially in the beginning, were around the dinner table as a family uh, with Tony as well in the beginning. Um, And so, I mean, we spent hours and hours and hours upon hours just getting to know each other and really those dynamics just kind of fell into place. I mean, like Odessa and I became the little girls that would like annoy (laughs) the the older brothers and annoy Colin and like, I don't know. It just, we just fell right into it. It was so interesting to watch everyone kind of um, uh, like adapt to their parts so perfectly. Because because of COVID, we would have to like meet in the kind of, outdoor spaces of some of our houses and I think from the very start we were kind of bound as a group not only in the making of the show but also in like the experience of the pandemic and making the show during the pandemic um because you know when we were we we couldn't we couldn't exactly like leave the bubble of the show like when we weren't working the only people that we were hanging out with was like each other so it was it it really kind of solidified the uh the isolation that the family felt did you find yourselves again knowing who your characters were and knowing the depth of understanding you had about the series sophie did you decide 
What happened? What really happened at the bottom of the staircase? And how much can you share? Um, I, I have decided to not decide. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't think, I don't know. I feel like I, I almost got too close and too involved that I need to like take, take a step back. And I just, there was so much speculating like on set, you know, in the scenes, out of scenes, like so much talk about it. Uh -huh. Um, and I think the healthiest thing for me was to like take a step back and be like, you know what? I'm never going to know. And I'm totally fine with knowing that and accepting that. You know, when I first watched the documentary, I was like, I am going to get to the bottom of this. Well, like one way or another, <laughs> me, me, Sophie is going to solve this case. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally fine with not knowing now. I'm at peace with it. Well, I really appreciate your time, both of you. Again, I, I had the great privilege of watching the series, watching it multiple times. And each time I learned something new about the character, I, you've cultivated empathy in these characters that I hadn't previously had. And it's just so well done. So thank you. And I know viewers are going to feel the same. So thank you both so much. Oh, thank you so thank much. You, Sophie Turner Thanks for taking Young. the time. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Larry Pollard, Michael Matthews, Sophie Turner, and Odessa Young for joining us. Next week, on our second-to-last episode, we will once again sit down with co-showrunner and writer Maggie Cohen, as well as the actress who brings Assistant District Attorney Freda Black to life, Parker Posey. That episode drops along with the next episode of The Staircase on Thursday, June 2nd. I'm Nancy Miller. The Staircase podcast is produced by HBO Max, in conjunction with Campfire Studios, in association with High Five Content. The Campfire team includes executive producers Ryan Alexander-Steiner, Rebecca Evans, and Ross Dinnerstein. High Five Content's executive producer is Andrew Jacobs. Our senior producer is Brandon Fibbs. Our coordinator is Mary Ald. Editing and mixing by Robbie Carver. Music from the series The Staircase by Danny Bensi and Sonder Urians. Legal by Diana Palacios. Special thanks to Moses Martinez at Loud and Strong Studios and David Urzua at Studio Awesome. And a very special thanks to you, our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. So if you like the podcast and you have a minute, please review and rate this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream it on HBO Max. See you next episode. <laughs>